Hey folks, my name's Andy Sido, and you're listening to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. My guest today is producer, recording engineer, steel guitar player, and founder of Coastal Bend Music, John Macy. Ah, I love my new theme song. I, I mean, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I killed it with that new theme song. Don't you think? It's so, it's so podcast-like. It, you know, it's a radio show. I'm introducing something. Anyway, I've had the new theme song for, I guess, a few months now, but um, it still feels new to me, and I like it, okay? And there's no uh, music biz issues because I wrote the song for the podcast, and it's not registered anywhere. It's just for the podcast. So, you know, if you've been listening for a while, you know we ran into a little bit of trouble with me even using little tiny clips of my own songs to introduce artists and things like that. Um, I am still doing it a little bit, but not with the theme song, and I haven't heard anything about it since. So there you go. Um, what's going on with me? I guess briefly, um, I think I mentioned uh, maybe a month or two back, I was named a finalist in the International Songwriting Competition um, in the Americana category, as well as the Kerrville uh, New Folk Competition. The Kerrville Delio I've, I've been working on because the finalists, there's 24 finalists and six of us will get to perform at the festival in Kerrville, Texas this, uh, this October. So I've been making a, uh, I've been recording the two songs and editing a little video together because it's a virtual, the finalists are all performing virtually, obviously. So that's coming up. But then I found out this morning that I did not win the International Songwriting Competition. That's okay. I was an honorable mention, and I got pretty far. Um, I was down to the last, uh, what, 12 or 14 people in the Americana division, uh, which is really cool, which is really cool. And I'm not exactly sure what the purpose of a songwriting competition is anyway. I don't know that anyone's trying to outright anyone else i think it's just uh, a good way to get some gigs and exposure and stuff so anyway i've i've had a little bit of success with them this year so i'm gonna keep doing it i'm gonna keep entering them why not um yeah i guess that's it <laughs> that's it that's all i wanted to say i don't even know if i wanted to say that i was just talking my guest today is john macy and i mentioned at the very beginning of the interview i believe that he has the distinction of being the most mentioned person on this podcast. And uh, this is not a, a Colorado music podcast by any means, but just by default of living in Colorado and being very involved in the Colorado music scene, a lot of the guests are from Colorado or have strong Colorado ties. Um, and as I listen to these people's stories, uh, you know, Mark Oblinger last week, Jenny Shahan a few months back, uh, Hazel Miller, Jeremy Lawton of Big Head Todd. As I listen to these, these people's stories, John Macy seems to come up in just about everyone's story, whether they interned at one of his studios or he produced a record for him or whatever it was. Uh, he's just been such a staple in the Colorado scene for such a long time that if, if you've been here for long enough, he's a part of your story. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, and so though I, I haven't really... I hadn't, excuse me, really spoken to John before this conversation that we had. I was really, really excited about it, and he's a guest I've wanted to have on for um, for a long, long time. So if you're a new listener and you end up going back and listening to some other episodes, the name John, John Macy is going to come up. 
in a whole lot of episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, he's probably a name. Um, he's probably a name you recognize, even if even if you don't know what from. It's from this podcast. It gets, it gets mentioned all the time. Um, but anyway, yeah, he, I think he said he's owned seven studios in Denver throughout the years. Um, he's currently at Mighty Fine Productions is his place. He's a producer, recording engineer, a great steel guitar player, um, and then also has Coastal Bend Music, which is uh, his, his small label that he runs out of Denver and Corpus Christi, Texas. And this interview was da- uh, done down in Corpus Christi. Uh, and yeah, I guess I guess that's all. Oh, he's also a huge baseball fan, and I'm a huge baseball fan, so we chatted about that for a while and um, some of the things his son was doing as a ball player um, through high school and a little bit afterwards, and uh, the minor league team in Corpus Christi. We just talk, talked about all that stuff, and actually most of that portion of the conversation is up on my Patreon page, which, speaking of, um, you can support me now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W, and I put up exclusive content from the podcast as well as unreleased tracks and um live streams and other things like that. So for as little as $3 a month, you can join my Patreon community, and I would appreciate it so, so much. If you'd like to support this podcast in a non-monetary way, you can do so um, by giving us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen, especially on Apple Podcasts. It's really a huge help and just takes um, a quick second. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with John Macy. Quick thanks to our sponsors. First, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, go to pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. For any sponsorship inquiries, you can shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. John, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Greetings from South Texas. Are you you're down in Corpus Christi right now? Is that right? Yeah, we have a place, and I have a, a studio just about thirty miles outside of Corpus Christi, around the, on the bay. Okay, so do you, you work when you're out there too? You're doing projects. Absolutely. You know, it's been well. It's been good this year because with the pandemic, everybody's working remotely. But yeah, I have a mix overdub studio down here. It's not really a tracking room. It's not really set up for like full bands and all it, it's more like a mix and i've got some overdub space for you know guitars vocals primarily you know and and mixing down here and uh, we have some guest quarters here so i can you know if an artist wants to come down and sing at sea level or you yeah. know get off the grid for a week and mix and sit on the porch and watch the ocean you know they can we can come down here you know at, at real easily to do you know well now don't people like to go up to places like colorado to sing high pitches don't, don't you sing lower yeah, that's i think it, i think people sing better at sea level. yeah exactly you know i remember working at caribou ranch back in the day you know long, you know when i first moved out to colorado and, the, and uh you know they had oxygen tanks up there because it was at nine thousand feet because horn players and singers would pass out you know from lack of oxygen right <laughs> yeah there's something magic about singing though at 90 percent humidity and zero feet sea level you know it's it's pretty cool you know moisture yeah. and oxygen you know yeah yeah well i've never cool. done that i'll have to try it sometime 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely different, you know. I mean, I've worked with singers in projects over the years that we've gone to studios at lower altitudes just for that. We're going to go cut the vocals, you know, here. We'll, we'll do everything else elsewhere. But, you know, we want to sing at sea level, you know. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, absolutely. Well, something... So we're spending about half the year here. I think that's that's our goal is to be in Colorado half the time and down here half the time. Are you mostly down there in the winter months and you know just trying to avoid the the cold? Yeah, I love the winter. I work on almost backwards, you know. It seems like we're down here in the hottest parts of the summer and in Colorado in the winter time, you know. But you know, it's it's just no there's no rhyme or reason right now. It's not one of those we're not winter Texans. We're just like let's just go back and forth. I have my children and my grandkids are in Denver, so we you know we want to we don't want to be gone too long at a time. So. I think we're kind of we're kind of looking at about every rotating about every six or eight weeks kind of thing. Okay, very nice, very nice. Just drive forth. You and you usually drive it. Yeah, because we bring dogs and cats with us. Okay. Oh yeah, sure. You've got to bring the whole house with you when you go for some of those weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so we we have a little menagerie we we travel with. You know, so it's pretty interesting. And yeah, keeps it entertaining. Well, so something that I think you have the record for on this podcast even though you've never been on it and don't know anything about it is i think your name has been mentioned more than anyone else's who's ever who you know any other name that's been mentioned it's been yours the most and uh you know i've just what we've done 72 of these now and it's not all colorado based but there's a lot of colorado artists and everyone just kind of gets on and tells their story and you're a part of an incredible amount of people's stories, you know, even just looking back at the last, at the last well, few podcasts. They were good stories. <laughs> yeah, no, they're all good stories. Well, it surprised me how many people said, oh, I, you know, I interned with John Macy or I worked with John Macy. And it seemed like everybody did that. You know, even the guys that have been in the industry for a while got their start um, working with you. And even just looking back at the last few episodes, you know, Mark Oblinger, Hazel Miller, uh, mentioned you. I think Nick Sullivan mentioned you, Jeremy Lawton. Um, if I just scroll down, it just seems like every second or third episode, there's a John Macy story. Uh, that's good. Well, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to launch people, you know, and, and, you know, we've had a lot of people start you know, one of, like I said, I've, I've been in Colorado over 40 years and I've, I'm on my seventh incarnation of recording studio. So we've had lots of people, you know, come through the door that want to learn and figure it out. And, that's I like to support that if you know if you like them then let's let's get them in because when I started there was no schools or anything you had to you had to do it that way you had to figure a way to get your foot in the door of a studio and cut your teeth yeah there you didn't go to school and figure it out and then get a home rig you know it was kind of like that's the way you did it you know and so it's it's a good you know I think the schools are great and all that too but there's nothing like just getting in and figuring it out and like Jeremy and and, and Nick, all those guys, you know, they all kind of spent a lot of time in my studios over the years, which is pretty neat. You know, it's yeah. so great to see them successful too, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where did this all start for you? I mean, where were, where did you grow up and how did you first get into music? Well, you know, I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, up in the Panhandle here and uh, in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you know, and I loved music. I, you know, music was around our house, but I wasn't a player, you know, we didn't. You know, we listened to what my 
dad was a very liberal Episcopalian minister in, in Lubbock in the 60s, which was very interesting. But, but you know, our house was full of, of, of folk music and jazz, and, and I grew up on the Beatles and Zeppelin, you know. And, but before, right before my senior year of high school, we moved to Boston, which was pretty head-spinning cultural change, you know, moving up yeah. there. And I did my senior year up there and was headed to college to go to UMass Amherst and get an English degree. You know, I figured that's what I was going to do. Yeah. And made an accidental wrong turn into a recording studio slightly before school started. And it was one of those, oh my God, 30 second, my life changed, you know, standing in a control room going, why do I want to teach English? I want to do this. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Kind of worked my way into there. And I, I hated country music growing up because partly, you know, what it, it was kind of like part of the lifestyle that we were living in and moved up there and through a long story, you know, got turned on to country music up there and ended up buying a steel guitar and learning to play country music in New England instead of Texas. Go figure it out. You know? Yeah, I, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I didn't see it coming either. I think, I think my dad thought it was going to have me committed or something when I told him I was buying a steel, you know. But, you know, that, but yeah, I, I fell in love with it. I cut my teeth up there, you know, for about three or four years, developed a, a band. My first band became a fairly legendary New England band that went on for like 35 years. Wow. And then I got an offer in 1976. Uh, we started a band in 72, I think. So 76, I got an offer to move to Colorado and play steel with Michael Murphy, who was based out of Colorado at the time. Yeah. And I, at that point, my my sort of the headlights were set on eventually moving to New York City and trying to develop, you know, an engineering and studio musician career there. I thought, well, this would be a great side detour. Go to Colorado for two or three years, then I'll go back to New York from there and. Still there. It's still, yeah, <laughs> you know, Colorado, back. your blood, you know, it, it, yeah. it, it's got some pretty deep hooks, you know. Were your parents um, supportive of the music thing? I mean, you had a minister as a father, and I mean, what, but there was music in the house. I mean, was, was this? Yeah, cool we listened thing? to, yeah, we listened to music all the time. It was a big deal. And yeah, they were actually were supportive. You know, we didn't, we didn't have any money. And so, you know, it was kind of like, well, it better take a year off and not and don't go blow the money don't go don't go to school and flunk out because you're you're thinking about this you know something else you know we we don't have that money to blow you know so so they were sport take a year off go figure it out and then if that's where you go that's where you go and they were always supportive of that and if you want to go back to school in a year then go back to school you know of course i never went back to school yeah yeah and ended up in colorado in the 70s yeah, I know. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And Colorado was such a great time when I moved at that point in time because I moved to I moved from downtown Boston to Evergreen, which Evergreen in '76 was a sleepy little, you know, community with a little tiny grocery store and a little restaurant, and a few other things. But when I moved there, you know, um, the Dirt Band was living there. All of Loggins and Cena's band was living in Evergreen, and Stills and Richie Fure and all these people living through the mountains there. And there's this beautiful scene and Caribou Ranch and Applewood Studios and you know, working all the time. And then by the end of the seventies, pretty much all that was gone, you know, yeah. everybody kind of moved on. But I love Colorado. I mean, you know, I'm a Texan at heart, but I, I'm a Colorado too. You know, I, lo I love it up there. And now what was happening at the Little Bear at that time? Was that, that was up there in Evergreen too, right? Oh yeah. That's been there forever. I'm, in fact, uh, 
I've been in Colorado maybe three or four days, you know, I, I come in and we were rehearsing, you know, for that, for the first tour of the year with Michael and the bus driver uh, took me down to the Little Bear. So let's go ahead. You want to go have a drink after rehearsal? I said, yeah, like, yeah. So we, so we went down to the Little Bear and I don't think we were in there 15 minutes before somebody came off the balcony into the table in front of us. You know, it was pretty rowdy back then. I was like, oh yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is serious honky. That was pretty wild back then. So that was, yeah. yeah, I had a legend back there. It was way wilder back then than it is these days. Now, did they already have the, are some of those bras that are hanging from the stage from the seventies, do you think, or is that newer? Yeah, sort of. I think, yeah, you know, there's a long story about that, but Tim, there was a guy named Timothy P. He had a band yeah. called Timothy P. on the Route 3, and they sort of, they started that. I think, uh, I think Tim said he was pretty legendary as a, as a pretty rowdy performer, and I think he said at the time, he had, they had some new band t-shirts, and he would trade a t any girl that came up and changed, you know, traded her bra for a t-shirt, he'd give them a t-shirt. And uh, I think he had no idea how many T-shirts he was going to give away that day. And sort of that sort of worth that all went to, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, I wasn't there. Yeah, I didn't quite see. But yeah, that was a Timothy P. tradition that he started. That's really yeah. <laughs> I've always Colorado wondered. history. I think yeah, that's important. Yeah, that's that's a, a serious trivia question. Um so running around in Evergreen uh, with with guys like Richie uh, Furey and um, they said the Dirt Band was down there. Um, how long was it before you started kind of rubbing shoulders and working with some of these guys? Well, right right from the beginning, I mean, we, you know, Michael was you know, and the Dirt Band kind of we kind of worked the same circuits. You know, we played a lot of shows together, and you know, Merle Bergante the drummer we became really good friends and I, I opened up, I built my first studio up outside of Evergreen in 1978 okay. and so a lot of guys you know we would use some of those guys and then you know it was like there was just a lot going on people you know you go down to the post house restaurant Evergreen in the morning you know or something go get some breakfast and you never know who you'd run into you know yeah. Carol King's band was there it was there was just tons of players you know wow. hanging out between between Netherland and Sugarloaf down to Evergreen, you know, it was just kind of full of players. And then everybody seemed to kind of gravitate out of there by the end of the seventies that, that is sort of, you know, went back to LA, went to Texas, you know, whatever, you know, but all of a sudden it was kind of like, wow, where'd everybody go? You know? So yeah. it's kind of a lull, but, but yeah, I mean, I got to be good friends like with the Derp in it ended up working, you know, to this day we're, we're friends and do stuff, you know? So, you know, it was, there was a lot, a lot of camaraderie back then, you know, because it was partly because we were probably bored off the road, you know, and there's nothing to do up there. I mean, I, I love being up in the, I moved down to Denver fairly quick after that, just because it was coming from downtown Boston to Evergreen. It was a little quiet. Sure. You sure. Know? And when you opened that like, studio um, in, in 78, was that sort of the plan? Hey, I'm going to open a studio and host bands, or um, were you hoping to continue touring more? I mean, what was sort of your your thought process kind of all of the above I'd, that's always sort of been my life at that point in time you know it's like i love being a musician and being on the road but like i love studio too so it was you know i had a partner and so we built it up it was kind of over by pine colorado kind of more towards pine up up, up 285 yeah and so yeah same thing i was i was playing you know i was workaholic you know we do sessions all day and play gigs at night or go on the road or you know it's just do as much as you can, learn as much as you can. You know, we were still cutting teeth, you know, at that point, you know, 
Yeah. And how old? How old were you at that time? I guess, well, I was 23 when we moved to Colorado. And so I was probably 25. A couple years after, I think we did that around 78. So I was probably like 25. And we kept that studio up into the early 80s and gas got expensive and people were less inclined to want to drive up there and winter weather and all that. And so sure. like around, I think around 84, I moved, we packed up the studio and rebuilt it in uh, Five Points. Okay. Uh, 20 something, but back when Five Points was way rowdier than it is now, you know, we bought an old Victorian down there and restored it and, was, and my studio was about 10 blocks away and that was another, you know, that was my second room. It was a whole lot of fun. What was that called? That we call that JMC music at the time. I think it's sort of the title, but everybody called it Macy's Studio because, in fact, people get confused about the name. That I, I remember back then, you ran Yellow Page ads. <laughs> you know, if you yeah, could, you know, no internet or anything. So I remember having to make my ad. You know, it said JMC Music Group, and then in parentheses Macy's Studio, so people could figure out. Oh yeah, that's Macy's studio because I tend to get called by my last name a lot, you know. Yeah. So kind of like should have just called it that from the beginning, but we were we were doing some corporate stuff too to pay the bills, you know, and try to sure. keep it kind of like that. Yeah. So that was but yeah, still playing all the time. I quit touring yeah, around that time, the early eighties. I quit doing the road thing just because I wanted to concentrate on just being a pretty much, you know studio engineer producer musician you know i still played a ton of ton of gigs you know locally you know kenny bond legendary guitar player from denver we played all through the 80s together yeah you know just just playing hockey tonks you know and and club gigs and stuff like that you know keep the chops up so yeah it's you know studio all day go direct to the gig at night and yeah wash yeah. rinse and repeat <laughs> Were you okay getting off the road? Yeah, I I I've, I loved it, but I love this. You know, the studio is still my favorite. You know, I mean, that's yeah. still where I felt the most control of. You know, and it felt that's it's kind of like coming home. I you know, I'm, over the years, I missed going out on the road a lot, and I would still do occasional things, you know, short things here and there. And I've worked with some artists that you know, play down in Texas or play down in the southeast. Some go to Europe. You know, I still like to do that, but. I like yeah. being home, you know. Yeah. Although it's been my wife and I've been together since the seventies, you know, and it was sometimes like I saw you more when you were on the road than when you lived at home all the time because you know you'd be in the studio all day and then go play gigs at night, you know, and it's kind of like it's like I kind of missed the road where you're out for like a month and then you were home for a month, you know, and then you were out for a month, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. I love my my home, you know. That's. And That's as, where I belong. As artists start coming in, as artists started coming into your studio, your second space, um, did you find yourself gravitating towards a genre or a style of music, or were you just taking, you know, death metal one day and folk the next? You know, I, ne I never really did a lot of stuff that I didn't necessarily know or like. Part of it was, I guess, when you, you know, it was a stigma. I, um, I fought a lot in life, too, because, you know, when you play steel guitar, you get pegged pretty deep as a country guy you know i like right. to do lots of things at one point i remember i worked so hard to not have that stigma that i had run into somebody i kind of knew and said oh yeah we, we talked about using you on this project it was country we didn't think you would like it you know 
it's like, wait a second, because because the Champa Street studio, there was a really vibrant alternative music scene yeah. in the in that period of time in the 80s. And our my studio in Five Points kind of became ground zero for it with twice wilted and electric third rail and Jones and the fluid and all these guys were all working out of my my joint, you know. So that was and and then I was cutting, you know, you know, country and roots oriented stuff. It's sort of pretty much what I've what I've done my whole life. So we didn't do a lot of that kind of stuff. It was all pretty, you know, pretty heady stuff at the time, I think, you know, I've, I've just not really had, and, and part of it is that people don't call you for that. When you play steel guitar, the metal guys aren't gonna call you, the hip hop guys aren't gonna call you, right, you know? Right. I mean, it does kind of eliminate a whole section of music that I wasn't all that interested in anyway, you know? It's kind of like, I like my whole, thing is I like cutting the real musicians in a room with turn the click track off and, and play real music. I mean, that's my, of course, my, what I love to do the most, you know? So it was an interesting. And there was a guy named Mark Fuller uh, who was around Denver in that period of time and yeah. legendary drummer kind of, you know, art crazy, you know, guy of that whole scene. And he was wanting to get a, learn the studio. And so basically I just gave him, here's the calendar, here's a key if there's nothing book go in and, and learn it you know and he did he got really good at it he did a lot of those bands that didn't have any money on it like thinking plague was one of my most favorite bands out of that area which was intense almost fatiguing music to listen to most normal people couldn't even listen to it's out there and you know the more interesting like most projects the more interesting and crazy it is the less budget there is so but that music needed to be made so my deal with mark was go go make these records with these guys and learn how to do it and everybody wins you know yeah so we there was a lot of stuff that got put out i think from that studio back then that might not have you know or not might not not have been released that kind of quality you know just because you know mark got to learn bands with, that were really cool that had no money got to make records you know and and then i did my work to keep it all afloat the rest of the time you know yeah and mark's mark gone on to be a very fine mastering engineer out in California these days, you know, so yeah. his crew, another, another thing up there is there's a guy that, you know, that just opened up after hours and went in and figured it out, you know, and made some really great records. Are there people that you routinely call on to do things that maybe is not your strong suit who started off um, working, you know, working at your studio who maybe you call now to say, Hey, I need, something on this track can you can you do it for me oh you musician wise you mean sort of yeah musician or or, or even your yeah, mastering i mean do you send stuff out to mark for mastering ever and things like that oh all the time mark's been doing all my stuff the last few years now i mean i've worked with a lot of great mastering engineers i'm a, a big guy on i would never master my own stuff you know that would just you know to me doing your own dentistry kind of thing you know i want a fresh set of ears by a guy that only masters you know I see a lot of people say, oh, I mix, you know, and master, you know, all that. It's kind of like, I want somebody, I want a great mastering engineer to, to finish my thing off. You know, I don't want to do it myself. Or you know, I want a guy that's used to seeing multiple different projects and understands level and competitiveness. And and that's all they do. So, yeah, so Mark, Mark's been my go-to guy for quite a while, you know. And musician-wise, yeah, I have tons of musicians that I, you know, a lot of the projects I do, and in some ways, my favorite way to work is I love working with solo artists that I get to put the band together. Yeah. You know, cast cast the players, you know, it's kind of like, 
oh, this is this is who we need on these instruments. This is where we need to go do it. I do a lot of stuff in Nashville because I've got a really deep deep base there too. I've been working there since the since the eighties, and you know, I've got players there. That's well, this this let's go to Tennessee and track, you know, and come back here, you know. And of course, now with remote recording, it's it's just oh, we'll have. We need Justin Weaver on this track, but you just email it. It's back the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. It's kind of changed the whole dynamic of of my world and everybody's world. It's neat. You can play with you can play with just about anyone now. Um, in terms of the mastering thing, so I've I've gone both ways on this, and everybody always says always send it to a different mastering engineer. But I, you know, I've had tracks that I've produced, and then I get to the mixing stage. And I'm, you know, I don't mix. It's a, a skill I'll learn at some point, but I'm, I'm not good at it. So I'll s- send it to get mixed and mastered. And sometimes it's two different people. Sometimes it is the same person. If I, if I think he's, he or she is good at both, and, um, you know, and it's a one-stop shop, which is kind of nice. But is that something where you would always say, hey, always send that to a different person uh, to master? That's just, mixed? that's just me because I think, I think every engineer has their own sort of sonic footprint, sure. you know, that, the, and, and if you, if you do that and then you master it, you're probably going to increase that sonic footprint. Yeah. And it may be, a, it may be a beautiful footprint, you know, to me, it's always kind of like, I want a third party that only masters, you know, when you mix, when you mix and master, it's kind of like, I don't know. It's to me, it's kind of like, I want somebody that all he does is look at competitive levels and, what's going on and is totally in tune to that world yeah. to, to put the fine on it for me, you know? So that's, you know, I mean, I'm, there's, you know, there's guys that can do it, I'm sure all day long. And it's just a, a direction I wouldn't go myself. I would never think about mastering my own stuff. Cause I said, all I think I'm going to do is increase or, in, or, or make, you know, what I do, it's going to be the same thing, just a little bit different. I, I really like to have somebody that's got the really great, you know, tuned speaker setup that really understands and, and it's used to their stuff going out all the time, you know? So I've, I've used mastering engineers since, since the beginning. And you know? yeah, it's kind of like, of course, yeah. when I started, it was a vinyl. So you had to use a mastering engineer when something you could do yourself. Anyway. Right. You, know, you had to go, had to go in and cut the lacquers, you know, with, with the mastering engineer, do all that EQ and compression live on the spot. You know, so really, and I just, wow. No, but there's I, guys, yeah. I'm in I'm in Colin Ricker's facility and Colin masters yeah. really great stuff. You know, he does he's really good at it. You know, it's that's just a skill that, you know, why should I get pretty good at something that I can have somebody really good at do? Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and deliver for me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um so in and you do you do all this um all the steel guitar too. And I've seen some of the stuff you've done online is really cool. Um, I, you did a, a, a cover I watched a few months ago. Was it, um, was it imagine where you had, yeah, I did. Uh, uh, it's amazing what you'll do in a pandemic when you're locked up by yourself, you know? So yeah. I've been trying to make my solo record. I don't write songs. You know, I, I work with amazing songwriters. I would never even attempt to try to write a song myself. And, you know, so I was, I've been trying to, you know, make a record of just covers that I really like, you know, instrumentally. And I've, I've tried, I've tracked records for myself that have ended up in the trash can, you know, just never finished part of it, part of it being 
you you spend 60 hours in the studio kind of the last thing you don't want to do when you have a day off is go back and work on your own project you know and, right but my daughter has been on my case of you know you are getting older dad you better leave us something that you did you know so i've been working on it so i'd cut a track of imagine it so i've just been cutting i've got i've got 12 songs track that i'm slowly working on wow. putting my parts on and, uh, so i was doing imagine and lennon's birthday was coming up and of course i know everybody in the steel guitar world you know just over the years you know you know with everybody and uh i thought wow we should just do like I should get a couple of guys and we'll, we'll trade this up. And then it became, well, I don't want to leave him out. And so the next thing I ended up doing was adding a second chorus to the end and chop, chopping the song arrangement up into four bar phrases and having 15 of us play on it. So there's 15 steel players from front to back, each taking four bars, which is pretty cool. And some of the best players in the world. I mean, you know, we were trying to figure that out. I think, you know, last sort of math I did between all of the 15 that are on there with a couple of three of the guys representing obviously the bulk of it but I figured the number of records that that group of 15 had played on and that sold was north of 300 million records probably you know between us so it's I mean serious some serious bros and, and you know on yeah. here you know you know and that, that's not even and i missed a couple of guys i would have liked to have but scheduling just didn't work out you know yeah well, so, so yeah we put that out so yeah that was that was a blast i, I love steel guitar i did uh, a couple of years ago i produced the record the birds sweetheart of the rodeo was a i don't know if you're familiar with it but it was one of the records that really launched country rock in 1968 yeah they took a huge turn you know and did that record and they went to nashville and cut half the record and they used a steel guitar player named Lloyd Green, one of my biggest heroes of the instrument who at that point in time, well, I know he's, I know he played on 123 number one singles and that's just number ones, not twos, threes or top tens. That's number yeah. one singles. Yeah. And then they went back to Los Angeles and did half the record with another hero of mine, uh, JD Manos. Yeah. Who's played on everything from Buck Owens to Eric Clapton, you know, and so they did that record in 68. And then so JD and Lloyd and I got together and for the 50th anniversary of the record, we recreated the record with the two of those, the two original steel players, which is pretty intense, playing the whole record instrumentally. Yeah. And it, it did really well for us nationally. You know, it was, it was an interesting, interesting project. Oh, yeah, so obviously, yeah, I totally, totally love the steel guitar world. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I'll be sure to include a, a link in the show notes to that, uh, to the Imagine with 15 different steel players. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> you notice everybody, it, you know, everybody has their own distinct style, right? Because these are all high level pros. And it's very interesting to me to see the video cut, you know, from these four bars to these four bars. And it sounds great. They flow into each other, yet they're each putting their distinct style on it. And it's, I don't know you, you know, it any. kind of amazed me because when I sent that out, you know, I kind of, I was going to do a different, you know, more elaborate video, but I was trying to get it for, for the John Lennon anniversary. So when I sent that out, um, I'm the only guy that heard anything else. Everybody else got an empty track and you're playing on bars five through eight, you're playing on bars, you know, 17, 20, nobody heard what the other person was doing which makes it even more amazing, you know? Yeah. And then I thought I was kind of wondering what I was digging myself into also. It's like, but combining all 15 of our parts, 
Yes, it, it showcases all our styles, but it also sounds like we were in a big circle playing, following the next guy, listening to what he played. There's no like, what the heck was that? You know, it's just, and that's with nobody hearing what the other person was doing. That, that to me, that made it even more amazing. That's amazing. And how often, I mean, with all the stuff that comes in into your studios, how often are you playing on the record? How often are you putting a part down? Uh, quite, quite often, you know. I mean, there's times that, uh, well, I, I love, I love my heroes, you know, and it's it's an amazing honor to you know to go. I mean, Lloyd Green, we talk all the time. He plays on a lot of my stuff. He's 83 years old, and and plays like a 20 year old, you know. So yeah. sometimes I go, you know, I'm a really good and accomplished player. I love what I do. At the same time, there's sometimes I kind of I'll look at a song and go, man, we need Lloyd on here. And Lloyd would play the perfect part on here. I'm, I'll fire myself routinely. Yeah. But I also play a lot on it. My, my guitar is right behind me here, you know. So yeah. I play I play on a lot of projects, and I play a lot of, uh, especially remotely, online sessions for people all over the country. I did a track for a guy in Israel the other day. You know, just, you know, people call you up and go that you don't know. You could be one of them, I wouldn't know. Yeah. And they send you stuff to play on. Now, there's a songwriter in North Carolina that I think I've played on 50 of his songs over the over the last few years. And we've never even spoken on the phone. I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't, wouldn't know what he looks like. Wouldn't know the sound of his voice even, you know, it's just like every couple months I get, Hey, I got two or three new songs and they're in your email and I play on them and you email them back and money shows up in your memo the next day and you're off to the next one. <laughs> so, and, and there's so yeah, I love yeah. to play. Yeah. So I, I play a lot of sessions. I'm always have rigs set up here and in Denver ready to go anytime. Uh, so the the whole remote recording thing, you know, we all started doing in the last year, right? Because we had to. But is this something that you've been doing for a long time? I mean, you've had the tools to do it for a while. Yeah, you know, it's been going on for a while, you know, back, you know, I mean, I can remember sessions, you know, back where you had to like, you know, make a slave copy of a two inch tape and pack it up and FedEx it to another city so they could book a studio and go in and play a part on it and pack it up and FedEx it back. And the next thing you know, that quick little overdub was several hundred dollars, you know, just between the, the studio cost and the FedEx, you know, heavy reel of tape and all that, you know, now, now it's, it's, it's all easy. And a lot of the guys I work with, you know, some of them, some of them don't want to do it, you know, like guys like Lloyd Green and, and JD and those guys, I mean, they're, they're in their, you know, seventies and eighties. And it's like, you know, they're not going to go buy a pro tools rig and figure that out. You know, right. you call them, they'll, they'll, we all have our favorite studios and say, Hey Lloyd, can you go over to Cinderella this week and put this part on for me? I can't get there, you know, yeah. but most everybody that I work with, you know, has their own rigs, you know, like, and that's, it's become a, so it's, it wasn't all that common, but now it's kind of like, it's kind of completely that way. You know, the last year I just, there's a uh, record by uh, Jenny Shahan that I'm real excited about that we just finished that's coming out this summer. And, yeah. You know, I track the, the rhythm tracks in Denver with her rhythm section, but every other part of the record was done remotely. Yeah. You know, and it, and it doesn't sound like it. That's 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 part of casting the right players, too. There's all I've, I see a lot of things, a lot of projects where it's done remotely and it sounds like it, you know. Yeah, I mean, sure. You, it, there's there's a disconnect however subtle it might be you know it's hard to it's hard to get guys that can can take a track like that and get in and 
overdub like they were in the room with the players. It's a it's a really different kind of player for that, which I have a a wealth of, you know. So like yeah. all the guitars and keyboards on Jenny's record were done in Tennessee by friends of mine there. Wow. And that I defy anybody to say that record wasn't cut live in the same room with everybody. Everybody's so in tune to that. But they, you know, part of it is some of these guys have been doing it their entire lives, you know. Right. So it just doesn't matter if it's remote or, or not they're pure you're, you know, kind of pure session players or have a vibe. So they know how to listen and anticipate what's going to be there. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing I struggle with, especially with younger players about how learning not what not to play. You know, that's, that's the hardest part of becoming a musician is, is, is learning what you're not supposed to do, <laughs> do sure. you know, jobs don't mean a thing on certain kinds of yeah you get a cut a jazz session it's a whole different story but you know when you're cutting a you know we you know people people have to listen to the singer and the lyrics you know yeah and that's hard to find but a lot of guys i work with they're they're so brilliant at that they they know how to interpret you know and you know and listen to that you know and and ask for lyric sheets you know it's like over chord charts even you know it's kind of like can you send me the lyrics you know you know so we can and it's something I've always tried to teach people I work around, you know, you know, it's because everybody wants to come to the studio. Yeah, I get it. I get it that you worked all week on that one part, you know, and, but it doesn't fit on the record, you know, so yeah. that's really cool. You can play that, but stop, you know? Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I run into a lot of that, you know, and, and when you get into some of these guys that have been doing it and living in studios their whole life, you know, it gets, it gets, you know, I have a little list of quotes that I'm constantly using in the studio, you know, three or four quotes that are just like, it's so to the point, you know, but that's why those guys work all the time too, you know, because they know, they know how to come in and listen to the tune and listen to the singer, listen to the lyric and capture a feel yeah. for the record. And it's a lot easier. It's a, it's a little harder to find in Denver. I mean, there's superb, superb musicians in Denver, you know, and of course, you know, and, uh, but yeah, finding that season thing of of what not to play is is the biggest deal, and the kind of music I like to produce, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you meant as you mentioned Jenny Shahan, I got a text from her too, and she's been on the podcast, so we have to uh, yeah, a quick shout out to Jenny and her new record, which she's been talking about, but hasn't let me hear yet. Yeah, it's coming out in uh, July, and she's already, you know, her release show sold out the first two or three days last week, so, you know, yeah. maybe there'll be a second one. But, yeah, I've been really super excited about that record. I've got about, you know, a little pent-up demand because we didn't put out a lot of stuff last year with the with the pandemic, but uh, I think Jenny's is the first coming out of what's happening this summer for, for me, summer and fall. You know, her record's fantastic. I, I love her. She just killed it, and the yeah. songs are great. And we match the right players, you know that I think really interpret her songs and, and do it really well. So I've got, I've got stuff all over the map coming out this year. You know, Larry Nix, we're trying to finish a project on him. I think he's one of the best songwriters in Denver and singers, you know, yeah. we see, you know, and we've got a record coming out on, uh, it's a duo record with Katie Glassman and Greg uh, Shockett uh, with fiddle and, uh, and arch top guitar, acoustic guitar, very di totally different, you know, it's kind of been all over the map. I got, you know, there's a, young rocking country guy named Trent Hughes. I've got a record I'm producing for him. I did a record with Rob Mullins, the jazz pianist last year. Yeah. Who was old friends that got held up because of the pandemic. That's going to come out this year. Yeah. You know, a couple of others, you know, coming out on a lot of it coming out on our small label, you know, and some of it from others. You know, but, well, I, I was but Jenny, gonna... really 
excited about Jenny's record right now. It's it's it makes me smile every time I listen to it. Awesome, awesome. I was gonna say, um, you know, I think her record and some of the stuff you've been you've been putting out, you're putting out on Coastal Bend. Um, right, that's your, my little label. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that? How did the label first come about? Um, you know, oh, you know, I mean, studio. it's like first of all, you have to go get a, a dictionary to figure out what a label is anymore these days. Right, you know, right. it's kind of. I was trying to create, and I'm trying to do more of it this year. I create more like a a, a co-op kind of house, you know, where we collaborate on on things. Some of them, some of them are fully funded by us and, and released fully on. Some are like joint ventures, you know. Just trying to, you know, I live in the coastal bend down here, which is why where the name came from. They call it this particular part of down by the water here the coastal bend you know and so that's sort of why i did it to just kind of reflect my texas roots and and all that and you know just keep just keep it out so you know we've we've had some some things come out that have done well at sweetheart tribute's probably been the best thing we've done so far i've got a couple of things that are kind of in negotiation right now that i think are going to do well for us this next year um you know so it's just it's it's loose i mean you know there is no you know, a lot of the stuff I do doesn't, it's not the kind of music that a major label would what go, we're going to put a million dollars into this to market it, you know, because it's a little more eccentric, a little more rootsy. And so that's the great thing. You can sort of figure out how to do it, do it yourself. And so it's almost, it's as much as a labor of love and a strength in numbers kind of thing. You know, I mean, if you're promoting one project, it kind of cross pollinates all the others, you know, so as opposed to having six, six or eight projects out on totally independent things that don't tie together. How can you figure out how to kind of do it under one roof? And yeah. so when somebody discovers Jenny's record, they end up over here and see this record or vice versa, you know? So it's, a, it's as much as that, you know, I mean, yeah. there's nobody selling records right now. So, you know, it's, you know, physically, you know, where, where you would have made the money to fund this, you know, it's, it's sure. a lot harder to do that now. It's like, how do you hire a promo and, do this one right right i sell some as coasters at live shows but that's about it <laughs> yeah I, uh, yeah you know we still press them because there there's certain people like them i buy cds constantly because yeah. i use spotify and stuff to find i hear about artists i'll go listen to them you know track them down and listen to it but if i like an artist i try to go to their website and buy it as close to the to the root as possible because i know that 10 or 12 dollars they're going to make off my CD sale is worth a hundred thousand streams or something, you know? So, so I, and plus nobody publishes credits anymore. So I, my CD collection just grows every day because a, I want to see who engineered it, who produced it, who played on it. Yeah. And I would like to support that artist by buying, buying something physical as opposed to listen on Spotify where they're not going to, you know, at that level, they're not going to make anything, you know? Right. Right. So, so my, my CD, everybody talks about getting rid of CDs. My CD collection grows every week. <laughs> You know, just because yeah. if I like it, I'm buying, you know. And so what is, you know, what is the the record label uh, for you? I mean, are you guys, are you constantly trying to, um, you know, is it just a discount on studio time? Or are you like, hey, we want to get this, we want to work distribution deals and things like that? I mean, how does the, the business side of that work for you? It's kind of all that, you know, that's, you know, having, having you know, being a studio owner, it gives me the... Uh, you know, the opportunity to make records at no cost, you know, other than, than time and musicians, you know, which helps because a lot of people either have to make it at home, which, you know, depending on the level of expertise can be really good or really bad, yeah. you know, or we do parts of it back and forth. Maybe they can do part at home. So, you know, it's kind of like, well, I have these great, 
I've got great studio spaces, so why not put them to use, you know? And so it lets us take some of that money that would have gone into the budget. The, the studio time eats a lot and be able to put that into promotion and that kind of, that kind of end, you know, and what's the artist and, and, and it's like, a, it's low key. It's not like, like, you know, you know, I don't want to own the masters, you guys own the masters. Let's, let's do this, you know, let's do a part of it's because I love doing it. I only do it with things I like, you know, I wouldn't do this with, wouldn't go in with something I didn't just love, you know? Yeah. So it's part, 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 here's the studio, you know, I've got, I've got some new people working with me. I've got a young woman who's sort of managing and engineering out of my room in Denver, you know, and, and it, there's, you know, it's like, Hey, can you go on and cut vocals for them? I'm in South Texas, you know? So, yeah. you know, it's, I've got the ability to add, bring that to the equation and a lot of years of context. And, you know, and like I said, you know, you get you, one record, get some notoriety or something like that. It, it, it sh shines light on other projects too. So it's really just a, it's almost like a co-op in some ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we don't, you know, it's not like we have a lot of money or anything, but we kind of pull all together. Like I said, I'd rather have the artists invest their money into promo right. as opposed to studio time, you know? And if, right. you know, it's, it's nice if we can, you know, if I can break even on my end, that's great. You know, you know, it's it's that's cool but you know let's use the resources we have you know yeah yeah absolutely so you've done so many i mean probably more rec you there's probably records that if you listen to them now you maybe maybe even forgot you engineered it there's probably just been thousands over the years right um and or, or maybe not maybe you remember every single one i don't know i constantly run into people you know they'll come up to you and go oh man i had such a great time in the studio making something with you you know and there's what oh, was great times and you're you're trying your brain is trying to process i have no idea who i'm talking to you know it was yeah. 20 yeah. years ago and <laughs> sure you know so it is hard to remember some of that stuff you know when you when you churn it out every every day i've cut a lot of music in, in four decades for sure you know? well there's you know you've you've had some records get some serious accolades i mean platinum and gold records with uh you know doing things with nitty-gritty dirt band gladys knight and the pips um Big Eton, the Monsters, Los Lobos. There's a few others. Is there something special that those records have in particular? Um, those ones that reach that gold and, and platinum level. I know there's a million other factors, but when you were in the in the studio doing some of those records, did you know at the time this one, this is different than the record I made last Tuesday. This one is special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some yeah. Obviously, when it's when it's a major label, and even if you're just a minor part of it, you know, maybe you don't, you know, you 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 know, you know that it's that yeah, this will probably be a big deal, and you know, but that doesn't make any different than you know. I would almost rather spend a lot of time with a with somebody that's obscure, unknown, and build this great relationship as opposed to things that just kind of come in and go away. You know, like a lot of those are just. <laughs> Some of that's being in the right place at the right time. They yeah. happened to be there to work on a project. You had the studio that was there. And, you know, some of them are like, you know, well, like the Dirt Band, we've had a relationship for four, four decades with those guys, you know. Right. You know, that's that's friendship on top of that, you know. So those that makes those even more more fun because that, that becomes a lifelong, you know, kind of relationship as opposed to, yeah, we, we worked on Gladys Knight's record. It won a Grammy and all that, but it was kind of like I never did anything else with her. You know, it was just kind of just being in the right place at the right time for things like that. And yes, it's I'm exceptionally proud of being a part of it, you know, but 
it's not like we call each other up 30 years later and go, Hey, what's going on today? You know, or, yeah. you know, I kind of like those long-term relationships, you know, yeah, for me. Yeah. And, and, and what kind of things, uh, what kind of things do you do for fun? You know, uh, not music related. What do you do on, uh, what do you do on Sunday afternoon? Well, you're probably in the studio on Sunday afternoon, but I mean, what do you, what do you do when you're not in the studio? Well, I think we, we, we had talked a little bit about a gigantic baseball fan. I love yeah. to watch baseball. I love to be a part of, you know, love to go. We're trying to go to all the parks. I love going to minor league baseball. I'm pretty sure tonight I'm going to go over and watch a high school baseball game because I hear the team is really good here. I've never seen them play. So yeah. we like watching baseball. I like, you know, it's Jenny and I were talking about, we're laughing about the three B's, you know, baseball, bourbon, and barbecue kind of are three important things. Are in that order? <laughs> Love bourbon and I and I smoke a mean brisket you know so yeah barbecue's a thing uh, you know Texas barbecue in particular you know so yeah. that kind of thing you know I like hanging out with my kids and watching watching them develop and like my daughter is a very successful dance studio owner in Denver and I've got our we have our first grandkids now so it's like and and part of it is I like being able to go you know I, know, I have a lot of friends that are music business couples yeah so I'm sure that grinds 24 seven, you know, <laughs> yeah, Sure. my home is, it's a little less that way. You know, it's a little less kind of, I like being able to step away and, and go home and not, not necessarily be immersed in it. Although at my house, my house in Denver, I've got a, an overdub, you know, first doing steel stuff and editing and stuff, you know, I still go in my office there and work on projects, but it's always, a, you know, it's, it's a place for me home and other and baseball. And so it's a place to turn all that stuff off for a while. You know? just just switch that key off and go do something totally different yeah yeah and you mentioned that was uh you know the team by your house the minor league team is astros double a team right what's Uh what are they what are they called okay the hooks yeah yeah that's we're big hooks fans and it's it's great you can go down and buy a five dollar ticket and it's never crowded it's hot as hell in the summer you know but it's it's great and i love minor league baseball like double a is so great because you've got this this mix of guys out there to prove a point and, and get moved up and you got guys that are on their way down and you got guys that know they're no, they're never going to get past double a, but they, but it's in their blood, you know, and they'll, they'll play as long as they can until they can't play anymore. You know? So it's a very triple double a in particular is a real interesting mix. You know, triple a, they tend to be more in and out of the majors and that I love, I love the double A and, and the fans are great, you know, that go that, you know, and who knows, you know, it's like, wow, you realize a couple of ways down the line. Wow. I saw Jose Altuve play double A ball before anybody knew where, he, you know, he was just a little short guy playing double A and yeah. now he's a big Astro player, you know, so it's fun to do that. So we're when pretty you, hooked on it. When you saw him in Corpus Christi, did you know, like this guy's good? He's going to be a big time Yeah. I can't player. remember. I think it was, I don't even really recall it. I think it, I think I think it was my son that told me. You know, we saw we saw this player or that player at, at that game. It's kind of like, well, it didn't register to me at the time, you know. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're winning big games, you know. So so yeah, that's sort of what I like to do. You know, still listen to music in the car, but I don't listen a lot in the house. Yeah. You know, it's a, you know just kind of I do like kind of clearing the head out, you know, over the before you head back into it the next week. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I, I sure appreciate I sure appreciate your time and you chatting with me. And is I mean, is there anything oh, that is there anything we left out? 
Did we cover the whole oh, career? You know, hopefully we left out all the bad stories, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No road stories, you know, where that's, yeah. No, I think it's, I think you kind of cover, I appreciate you talking to me. I'll look forward to seeing if I remember any of the things I said when I listened to it back. You know? <laughs> oh. Yeah. No, that sounds that sounds great. If you don't mind, stay on the line with me for just one second, but I'll I'll press the stop button for the audience. So thank in front of the audience, thanks so much. All right, thanks, y'all. Awesome. There you have it. John Macy. John, thanks so much for chatting with me. Um, and it was great talking a little bit before the interview and after the interview as well. That's sometimes the best conversation I have with people is before and after we're on the air. And um, I'm looking forward to meeting John in person, um, you know, maybe maybe visiting him over at his studio and catching up a little bit. But it was a great conversation. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, he's somebody that I've wanted to have on for a long, long time. Just because he's he's such an important puzzle piece um, in in so many people's stories in the local scene here. So um, awesome conversation. And John, if you're still listening, or if you if you listened at all, thank you so much. I really uh, I really do truly appreciate it. Um, once again, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com/slash Andy Sido S Y D O W. I put up exclusive content that is not up for everyone else to see. Um, and it just helps keep me going. You can join for as little as $3 a month. Also, if you would rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, that is a huge help um, for the growth of this podcast. Uh, for any inquiries, hate mail, death threats, questions, comments, you can shoot them over to me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you next week. Thank you.